everyone, and welcome to the Filene Fill-In. I'm Holly Fearing with Filene. The Filene Fill-In is the podcast where we fill you in on what's been going on here at Filene's home base and out and about in the financial services world. Earlier this summer, Filene held a research event focused on creating exceptional member experiences by redesigning organizations from a perspective of both the inside-out and the outside-in, meaning looking at how your credit union operates and how various internal teams and systems interact, and looking at how member experiences in turn inform your operating structure. At that time, we were excited to share Filene Fellow for the Center for Organizational Entrepreneurship, Dennis Campbell's latest research report on member experience and service excellence. I'll have the report link in the show notes. But this week, we are even more excited to share that right now, part two of this report is now out. So if member experience is core to your credit union strategy, or reassessing your strategy is a key initiative for your organization this year, and really, where is that not a key initiative? Then you'll want to look at both of those reports, available for Filene members at filene.org slash 476 for part one, and filene.org slash 488 for part two. Accompanying each of these reports, you will get a facilitation guide and agenda for a team workshop on enhancing your member experience with part one and identifying your target member and aligning member organizational compatibility with part two. To help you make the most of these resources, we thought we would share the live keynote directly from the report's author, Dr. Campbell, from our event out in Boston this August. And as an added bonus, we're also sharing a run-through of the workshop guide and exercise he did with the audience on site. So if you couldn't make it, or you did, and now you want your whole team to gain the knowledge that you did, you're in luck because Dennis is about to take you through a very valuable exercise. A quick rundown of Dennis's background is worthwhile for those that don't know him. It's pretty impressive, and he really knows his stuff. Dennis Campbell is the Dwight P. Robinson Jr. Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. As an internationally recognized expert on the design of organizations and management systems, his research, teaching, and case writing focus on designing and integrating organizational systems, efficiency measurement, and incentive systems. Not only is Dennis a longtime partner of Filene and core contributor to our research agenda, he's also a longtime supporter of credit unions, including serving as a board member. And now, here he is. Just to give you a little bit of background for what I want to talk about, I think it might be useful to uh, you know, talk a little bit about how we thought about the theme for this year, and the theme being member experience. And the idea is, you know, we spend a lot of time in the center thinking about you know, what are the topics that are top of mind for credit union executives. And I think it's not surprising to all of you that this idea of member experience, competing on member experience, thinking holistically about member experiences across channels, uh, within channels, uh, over their lifetimes with you, how we compete on that basis, that seems to be really, really important, not just in this industry, but I think in many industries, across services, across manufacturing. I think a lot of firms these days, for many reasons, are thinking about competing more effectively on customer experience. And it got me thinking about, uh, you know, what do we actually know about firms that do this really well? And in fact, um, one of the things that Taylor didn't mention is that during my time at HBS, uh, since I was a doctoral student back in the uh, 2000s, 
I've been studying service organizations, uh, both from a research standpoint, but also in my teaching and case writing. I've spent a lot of time in you know, all of our major programs at HBS focused on uh, service businesses and managing service businesses. And a big theme you can imagine there is on this idea of how do you, how do you really create and differentiate on customer experience. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so for, you know, as we kept hearing this idea of member experience come up, one of the things we thought would be useful is just to kind of step back and look at what do we know from the academic research on what it takes to compete on customer experience. What do we know if we look across the cases I've written, the cases that others have written, the topics that we've been teaching in our MBA and executive courses about firms that do this really well. And so that's the first part of this. And I think the, you know, just to summarize the research that's in the report, you know, there's three key themes I think that come out of that, three key ideas. Two that are pretty stable and enduring, and one that I think is relatively new and emerging. And the first two are this idea of focus and the related idea of customer compatibility. Focus in the sense of clarity in terms of what the experience should be, what the experience should be from the customer's perspective, and then clarity in terms of aligning your operations to deliver on that experience. That's the idea of focus. The second related idea is the idea of customer compatibility, and the idea there is that it's very hard to serve multiple customer segments with one operating model, very hard to be all, uh, you know, all things to all people with one operating model. And so the idea there is how do we think about what customers are most compatible with our model? How do we manage customer compatibility proactively? And I think this is a, a, an interesting idea. The third thing that I think is kind of new and emerging that we're starting to see is this idea of operational transparency. And the idea here is that if you think about, uh, it's no you know, surprise in this room to start to think about the idea that as digital technologies come to play, as people's tastes start to shift towards interacting through te technologically driven channels, that starts to disintermediate the relationship between you and your customers to some extent. At least disintermediates the relationship between your face-to-face -face employees and your customers. How do we think about differentiating and creating great customer experiences in these sorts of channels? I th we think that one of the answers is this idea of operational transparency, and that is the idea that um, the work that's going on behind the scenes, the work that your employees are doing on behalf of customers is in many ways invisible when people are interacting through these technology-driven channels. How do we make that work actually transparent? And what the you know, it really interesting research by my uh, colleague Ryan Buell has shown is that if, if you could do that creatively, it actually leads to really big differences in the perceptions of value that customers get from their experiences interacting with you. So this is, a, a we think, a way to start to, start to differentiate in these technologically driven channels. So that's the idea. There are these three kind of enduring themes, I think, that are really important when we start to look outside credit union, the credit union industry. That is the idea of focus, customer compatibility, and operational transparency. The second part of the research that we did was to sort of ask the question, you know, do these ideas translate into the credit union industry. And for that, we did some uh, survey-based work. And we have some interesting results there. I'll share the, the, that with you in the sense of, you know, do we see any sort of correlation between credit unions implementing these ideas and performance? And we have some interesting results there. I'll summarize for you as well. The last part of the research, which is still ongoing, and I'd invite all of you to participate, is that we want to get behind those survey results. 
get the qualitative issues, get at the leadership challenges that all of you face in implementing these ideas. So we're conducting some focused interviews with credit union leaders to get that kind of information, and we'll summarize that as well. If anybody's interested in that, please uh, talk to us afterwards. So that's the idea. So I want to spend the time I have with you talking about the largely the first part of this research. So what are these ideas? How do they play out? Why do they seem to work? And can they work in credit union, uh, the credit union space? So the first, I think, is a relatively simple idea. This is the idea of focus. And what we know from the research is that what we call focused competitors in any industry, they tend to outperform their peers. And let me just give you a quick example that I think illustrates this point well. So the example here is Southwest Airlines. So they're, they're an interesting example for many reasons, but one of which is that the airline industry, you can imagine, is a very competitive industry. It's also a very unprofitable industry. On average, if you look over any long time period, returns in this industry tend to be negative. Uh, profitability tends to be uh, non-existent. Southwest is one of the only US airlines that's consistently over many decades actually outperformed those expectations, has been profitable over many decades. And when people sort of look at Southwest, you know, there's many, many um, answers to why they're able to do this, right? One is their, operation, their operating system is very well designed, but if you actually step back and say, why is their operating system well designed? It's because they are, in many ways, thinking from the outside in. They really start with what's the customer value proposition? What is it that customers really, truly value? And how do we make trade-offs that actually support that? So here's the idea of focus. The idea of focus is we want to think of a couple of things. One is, if you can get in the minds of your customer and you could think about what's most important to, the, to your customers, to your members, and you could order that from most to least important, right? So you can imagine that if you ask your customers, your members, what they want, they want everything, right? They want low prices, they want high quality, and so on. But if push comes to shove, right, what kind of trade-offs are people willing to make? What do they prioritize when they're making decisions to choose your competitor? And Southwest view is for our primary target customer, what they truly care about is low prices and friendly service. They're not, they care about having onboard amenities, they care about extensive networks, they care about having the most convenient airports, but they care about those things less. So once we understand that, right, we could start to think about what's the right way to allocate resources in, inside of our firm. And so what Southwest does is the following. They basically say, we are not going to try to be all things to all people. We are going to deliberately underperform on the things our customers care less about so that we can be best in class in the things that they care most about. This is the idea of focus, right? It's saying we're not going to be deliberately not be all things to all people. We're going to deliberately be bad at some things our customers might care about in order to be best in class at things they care most about. This is the idea of focus. And sort of the fundamental idea here is that if you think about strategy not just as what you choose to do, but what you choose not to do, this is the idea of focus. And what we could see across most industries is that industry leaders, those that outperform the industry over long periods of time, they tend to have this characteristic. And it might not be they're competing on price. You know, you may make very different trade-offs. It may be that you're worst in class on price, but best in class on other things. And in fact, I suspect, let me just see by show of hands here. How many of you, when you have the choice on a route you're taking, would choose to fly Southwest versus a full-service airline? How many in this room? How many of you would never fly Southwest and would always choose the full-service airline? Right, this is the idea. They're not all things to all people. They're not going to satisfy those of you that just raised your hand here, right? The idea is many of us actually want the onboard amenities, right? We want the first class seats. We want all these great things. Others actually want price and they're willing to give those things up, right? In Southwest, 
is very clear about who their primary customer is. They're very clear about the basis on which they're going to compete, and they're very clear on what they're going to give up in order to be best in class. So that's the idea. And if you think about Southwest, right, when we give up on these, these things, for example, not having the most extensive network, not being, being a little bit sometimes in out-of-the-way airports, that reduces costs. We pass those, that cost on to consumers. It lowers price, making trade-offs that favor the, their primary customer market. And again, if we just sort of uh, take this room, it's pretty clear if we look at this from the perspective of a full-service airline customer, those of you that just raised your hand, it looks exactly the opposite, right? It looks exactly the opposite, that ultimately those airlines are serving a very different segment. They're optimizing on very different things. And the idea here, right, is why, do, why is Southwest model powerful? Why is Focus powerful? It's because they're creating white space here and here. They're differentiating on the things that matter most to customers, and they're not wasting resources and costs on things that matter less. We want to create white space with our competitors where it matters most, and we want to create it the other way in areas where we can actually save cost. And so this is the basic idea of focus. It's not just Southwest. We can see this across any industry. The best competitors tend to have this feature where they're making these trade-offs. The trade-offs might be different, but it starts with what's the customer value proposition. We work backwards from there. That's the idea of focus. Now, here's the, the kind of takeaway from this, right, is that the view of uh, proponents of this model is that you have a choice to make, right? You can either make these kinds of trade-offs or you could try to be all things to all people, the result of which is you're likely to be average at best to everyone. And so this is the idea. You can't be all things to all people. There's a choice to make. And if you don't focus, others will, and they'll, they'll tend to outcompete you. That's kind of the idea. So here's um, some key questions around this, right? If you actually look at Southwest, there's a bunch of things going on there, right? First is we have to answer this question, who's the primary customer, right? Southwest, clearly, just looking at this room, about half of you are not their primary customer. And they're OK with that, right? They're very clear who's the primary customer, who isn't. We're going to make trade-offs in favor of the primary customer. Once we do that, right, we can ask, what do they value most? We actually can't even get to that second piece of what do our customers value? What are the, what's the basis on which we should be competing? Unless we actually answer that first question. Then, of course, we, once we understand that, we could start to ask ourselves, what trade-offs can we make? What would it take to reliably differentiate on those aspects of the experience that matter most? This is kind of the power of, of that model. That's the idea of focus. Now, here is the, um, the issue, right, is where does this start? Is where, who's your primary customer? You, you actually can't even start to think about this idea of focus without first answering this question. And I think if you look at the credit union space, right, the credit union space, any of you are serving, you think of your missions, right? You, you're serving many different segments. They have many different needs. They're interacting across many different channels. We have many customers we sort of have to serve here. And it turns out that um, you know, this, this idea of sort of who's your primary customer and being able to answer that clearly in a world where you're trying to be all things to all people, this is a really difficult thing, but it's also a really powerful thing. And let me just give you a few quick examples of this where the answer would seem simple, but actually it has pretty profound implications. So the first is a company we all know, right? It's McDonald's. And McDonald's faced this interesting dilemma back in the late 80s, early 90s. And the question they asked themselves is, should our primary customer be consumers, right? The, those of us that walk into the restaurant, eat the food, and so on? Or should it be developers, the franchisees, actually, that are developing the restaurants, developing the real estate, and so on? McDonald's decided, actually, that at that, that point, they wanted to grow faster. So they wanted to focus on the franchisees. 
Well, what does that mean? When you say the franchisee is the primary customer, it starts to change how you think about your strategy. It, it starts to, you start to move resources away from R&D on food, for example, and quality of service. You start to move it towards real estate and site selection and developing that infrastructure. In short, McDonald's becomes a real estate firm. They see the fastest growth that they've had in their history, but what else do you suspect happens? Quality goes down. They also see the lowest, uh, biggest drop in customer satisfaction they've had in their history. They eventually reshifted that focus, and today they're very much focusing on the consumer as the primary customer. Of course, that means more R&D. Of course, that means more service infrastructure. But that's the point. The, the answer to that simple question has really profound implications for how you allocate resources. Second one I think is interesting is Merck. And Merck's a, you know, a large pharmaceutical company. And any pharmaceutical company has this kind of basic dilemma of, do I treat the patients as the primary customer, right? Those that are actually getting the medication? Or do I actually, uh, do I actually think about the doctors that are prescribing the medication as the primary customer? In which case, I may invest more in a sales force getting out into the hospitals and so on. Merck did something interesting, which is to say, actually, both of those are important, right? We're going to get our revenues from patients. We're going to get our revenues from physicians believing in our medications and prescribing them. But Merck actually decided that our, their primary customer are scientists, scientists at academic institutions, scientists at other research institutions. In short, they thought of themselves much like Harvard thinks of itself, like an academic institution. And the idea there is that if we produce the best science and it gets validated by the best scientists, it will lead to the best medications, we'll be able to compete, and so on. And what does that mean internally? Well, if you want to think of the scientist as your primary customer, now I don't invest so much in my sales force, but I'm going to invest in giving people a lot of time to actually publish, to develop research, to get out to conferences. They have to think very, very differently about the people they hire, how they allocate resources, but it all stems from this choice of who's the primary customer. Final one is an example I think we all know, which is Amazon. So you think about any platform kind of business like Amazon, you have, how do, you have to create value for many different constituencies, right? One is the consumers, those of us that wait in our home for the goods and services. You have to create value for sellers that you need on the platform, both large and small. All of those are important, but when you have to allocate resources, when trade-offs happen between them, how does Amazon sort of think about that? And Amazon's quite clear that you know, those of us that use the service, the end consumer, we're the primary customer. And what does that mean? That means that when they are focusing on innovation, when they're investing in innovation, it's all on how do they get things to you faster? How do they get things to you in more convenient ways? That's where the vast majority of their resources go, not towards just attracting better sellers, not just uh, towards attracting bigger enterprises. So in short, you know, if you look at all of these examples, I think what's common across them is that you know, this, this question is really critical because we could start, once we have that answer clear, we can actually start to think about what do they value. We could start to think about this idea of focus the other is that you know, it's about resource allocation. How are we actually allocating resources internally? When we have clarity in this question, it becomes easier, and you see that, I think, with these examples. So that's the idea, right? So once we, 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 we need to answer this question to even think about focus, now here's the challenge, right, is that it turns out that you know, most firms, and I think everybody in this room, you're serving many different segments, many different needs, and so on. So of course customers are different, right? And so uh, I'm going to share with you a little bit of research that my colleague Ryan Buell and I did across firms. So we did this uh, with data from banks, with data from hotels, data from restaurants. And the basic question we asked is, 
why are customers different in their satisfaction levels? If you look across your own customers, right, your own members, they probably vary a lot in terms of their satisfaction levels. Why is that, right? What explains those differences? And you can imagine a bunch of different possibilities, right? One is the mar differences in the markets that you're in and how customers are interacting there may explain that, right? Some markets are more competitive, some are less. Perceptions, expectations may differ across markets. Some of it might be aspects of the location, right? Is it a more convenient location, less convenient location? Some of it might be differences in terms of the employees customers are interacting with. Some employees are better than others. Some of it might be differences in process. Sometimes your processes are performing well, sometimes not so well. Processes are different across channels. The last thing we were interested in here was the idea that, you know, given all of that, that maybe some of it is just about the customer that happens to walk through the door. Some customers are just habitually satisfied. Some are habitually dissatisfied no matter what you do. How much of that sort of explains differences? So look, here's what we found. What's interesting is when you look at this, all of those factors before the customer explain very little of the differences, of why there are differences across customers and satisfaction. The vast majority of it is explained by who happens to walk through the door. What this sort of says is that you know, who walks through your door, right? Some customers are just habitually satisfied no matter what you do. Some are habitually dissatisfied no matter what you do. This is what our sort of research shows across many different industries. When we look across our customers and we ask why is there so much variation in their satisfaction levels, so much of it is tied up in just who happens to walk through the door. It's not driven by differences in your processes, differences across your employees, differences across your location. It's really about the customer that happens to come through the door. Now imagine that those of you that raised your hand saying you would never fly Southwest, right? You, you, if you had the choice, right, you'd always choose a full service airline. Suppose that Southwest was the only one flying a route and you need to use Southwest. Are you likely to be satisfied? Probably not, right? They're not going, they're not delivering on the attributes you care most about. And so this is kind of the idea here is that these, it's not to say that these things don't matter, right? Of course your employees matter, of course your processes matter, but in a well-managed firm, right, especially in a focused firm, you've driven a lot of the variation out of these things already, right? The idea here is, look, think of Southwest. They're gonna be very careful in who they're hiring, how they're hiring them, how they're motivating them to exhibit certain behaviors. In short, they're gonna really drive out variation. They want the right type of employee. They want them motivated in the right way. Once we do that, right, once we do that and we have our processes running relatively smoothly, now what's left, right? What's left is, are you attracting customers that actually identify with the operating model you've created? Or are you attracting customers that actually will never be satisfied by that operating model? That's kind of the idea. This problem will become even worse with focused firms because ultimately, uh, when, you do, when you have focus, it means you're saying no to a lot of things that other customers might care about. And so, that's kind of the idea here, that once, you've, once you're performing relatively well in terms of your HR practices, in terms of your processes, what's left is who are you attracting, actually? And many firms tend to attract incompatible customers. I'll show you in a moment. That has some pretty big implications. So look, here's the idea. Not all customers are compatible, right? They're different. They're not all compatible with your model. So just one quick question here, and I'll, I'll share with you some ideas on this. You know, why do incompatible customers choose firms in the first place? Because the idea here, right, is that, you know, you've set up your operations, you have a primary customer in mind, but still somehow incompatible customers are actually coming into the, in the door. 
why does that happen, right? Why do incompatible customers actually get it wrong, right? Why do they actually choose the wrong firms in the first place? And of course, you know, you can imagine here, just think about the, uh, a customer facing the option of, you know, where do they choose a financial services provider? Which uh, provider do they choose in their particular market? There's a lot of options, right? And so, you know, if you think about, first of all, the ideal option for a customer just might not be available in every market, right? So they're forced to choose second best. This is the example where I'm sort of getting you to think about if Southwest is the only one flying a route, maybe you have to take it. American or whatever your preferred airline's not available, right? So that's the idea. Second idea is that customers aren't supercomputers, right? They're what we call boundedly rational. They have really imperfect sort of information. They have advertising, word of mouth, very imperfect signals on service quality. Most of us learn about service quality once we select into a firm, once we start interacting with it. Learning about service quality, learning about experience is actually a slow process. We rely on imperfect signals for that, right? And so some of this is just that uh, it's, that's a hard thing to do. Customers know what they're told and they fill in information gaps potentially in biased ways, right? We have imperfect signals, try to make sense of that, they may end up making wrong choices. So look, for whatever reason this happens, here's what our research shows across financial services, across other service businesses. What our research shows is that uh, compatibility, the, the more you can attract compatible customers, the more that you can repel incompatible customers, the better performance is on a number of dimensions. So the first one is that compatibility is a strong predictor of satisfaction. So what my colleague and I did here was across many different firms, we got a lot of the customer data, and we came up with various measures of the extent to which customers were aligned with the service model the firm was trying to offer. So alignment might be around, are they exhibiting behaviors and transaction patterns that are typical of your customers? Are, do they have product portfolios that are typical of your customers? Do they have demographics that are typical of your customers? Or do they diverge in a big way from those characteristics? And generally what we find is that compatibility, right? More aligned customers tend to perform better for you. They have, they have uh, higher satisfaction. They also have higher intended and actual loyalty. And across a number of sort of dimensions, what we would call incompatible customers, right? Those that are misaligned with your operating model, with your value proposition. The more we attract those, the worse performance is on a number of dimensions, including, first of all, incompatible customers, as we've been discussing, right, are less satisfied overall, of course. They have lower net promoter scores. They're less pleased in general with the interactions with your employees, no matter how well they do, right? That's the idea here where employees don't explain a lot, right? Once you have good HR practices, What's left is do the employees value the, or the customers value the interactions they're having. The other is they have lower in, uh, in both intended and actual behavioral loyalty, generate less revenue, and then finally the interesting I think one is that they impose more costs, right? Complain more, they they, ask, they uh, require more resources for service recovery and so on. And so in general, right, the more incompatible customers we have, the more costs and the less performance we're going to uh, have generally. You know, the, the idea here, right, is that if we take this view, compatibility is something that needs to be actively managed. And this is a difficult thing, right, because some ways we might manage it might be saying no to some segments of customers, right? But let me give you a few other kind of strategies for how to think about this. So here's the idea is that if you want to manage customer compatibility, there's a, there's a couple of dimensions on which you need to think about this. And the first is strategic, and strategic meaning that you know, this basic question I think that you're proposing here is, do we reduce, do we reduce uh, incompatibility or do we accommodate it, right? If we have very different segments of customers with different operating requirements, do we choose to reduce that, i.e. by saying no to some customers, yes to others? 
or do we choose to accommodate that, right? By either trying to be all things to all people, or I'll give you some other ideas on how to do that. But the idea here is there's a basic question, do we reduce or accommodate, right? And on the reduce side, right, this is customer selection. Being very clear, right? Putting boundaries on what customers you will uh, serve, what customers you won't serve, what attributes you're gonna focus on, what attributes you won't focus on. That's the idea of customer selection. The other side of this on accommodation, this is really, you know, how do we do that in an intelligent way? This has gotta be about service design, and so we'll get into that in a little bit. So that's the first basic sort of dimension you have to think about this on. The second is, you know, do you do these things in a centralized or a decentralized way, right? And centralized meaning that, you know, you, look, you make a decision uh, top down, which customers you're gonna focus on, which you're not, what attributes you're going to, uh, to accommodate, what attributes you won't. The other way we could think about this is in a more decentralized way. Give customers information, train them, for example, to uh, be more compatible with your model. Uh, allow employees to make decisions to make customers more compatible with your model. In short, we have to think about this both in terms of first level, do you want to reduce or accommodate? Second level is do you do this in a centralized or decentralized way? Let me give you a few quick examples of this. So let's start with the first, which is suppose that you say, I want to reduce incompatibility. I want a model that serves more compatible customers. How do I do that, right? Centralized reduction, I think in the credit union space, the simplest way would be restrict your field of membership, right? Do you actually choose a broad field of membership or do you restrict that field of membership? Centralized reduction would actually be, say that I'm gonna restrict the field of membership to those that I can actually optimally serve. That's one way to think about this. Just some other quick examples, right? The idea here is with centralized reduction, what you're trying to do is work to systematically reduce the attraction and selection of incompatible customers and foster the selection of compatible customers. Again, field of membership, I think, is a simple way you can think about this here. But just some quick others. So one is uh, uh, you can do reduction in terms of what you're offering. And so here, think about Southwest, for example. You can reduce variation by changing the parameters of the offering such that it's less attractive to incompatible customers. Southwest making the trade-offs, right? Focus is a way to do this. Because in essence, what you're doing when you choose to compete on some things and not on others is you're saying no to things that a big segment of customers might care about. And so this is one way to sort of think about this. The other is customer specific. That is being very clear about what customers you will serve. Again, this is the field of membership question. And I think an organization most of us know here that also tends to be kind of tops on any best service firm list is USAA. USAA, financial services firm that serves the needs of current and former military uh, personnel and their families. And by restricting the field of membership to that, they can understand the needs of the unique needs of that population, design products and services that serve the needs of that population better than competitors that choose to serve many different constituencies. But again, this is, this is centralized reduction because it's the firm saying we're gonna restrict the field of membership in this organization to a particular set of customers, in essence, we're saying no to others. The other is, of course, we could think about location. So Whole Foods is this, right? If you imagine Whole Foods has a particular customer segment, they're very careful about the suburbs and the cities in which they locate because they want to locate in areas where there are customers that are compatible with their model. So these are ways that you could sort of think about centralized uh, reduction, but the idea here is you, you will have made a choice to say we want to say no to some customers, we want to systematically attract others, we manage it proactively that way. Let's look at the next, which is 
Suppose you still, you're still, you want to reduce, right? You want to reduce incompatibility. I want to make customers more compatible with my model, avoid some of those costs that we discussed earlier. There's another possibility, which is to do this in a decentralized way. And let me give you a few examples of this. So the idea here, decentralized means rather than you deciding who you will and won't serve, you are transparent and you give information and you empower customers to make their own decisions better. Right? You empower them to make decisions. And in effect, think about you know, what I showed you with um, the idea that customers are boundedly rational, that they uh, you know, can't uh, process all information. They learn slowly about service quality. This is about helping them learn faster. This is about giving them information so that they can make their own selection decisions. And so one way to do this is what we call operational transparency. And the idea here is to be, uh, you know, communicate the value you create and also the trade-offs that are inherent in your model. Be very upfront about those, because then customers know what they're going to get. They also know what they're not going to get. This facilitates and empowers them. It gives them information they need to make their own decisions. Makes it less likely you'll attract incompatible customers. A few examples. So uh, ThreadUp. I don't know if uh, many of you know about this, but ThreadUp is an interesting platform company that um, is like. Uh, it's like Airbnb for used clothing. Like, so if you uh, thread up, what they do is they basically say, look, uh, there's an underutilized asset in most of our closet, closets, which is nice clothes that we're just tired of wearing. Right? They're sitting in our closet. There might be other people out there on the other side of the platform that want those, clo those clothes. So they want to match the, the, those, uh, those folks. They want to get the high quality clothes that people aren't wearing, sell those off to others. The problem is, is when they go out and they ask people for their used clothing, what do you think they get? They don't just get the high quality stuff, they get the stuff that you're not wearing anymore because it's ripped, it has stains, and so on. That imposes a lot of costs on their operations, right? And so the idea here is that they're attracting with this model both compatible customers, right? Customers that actually want to sell high quality clothing they're just not wearing anymore. They're also attracting incompatible customers, those that just want to get rid of dirty clothes, ripped clothes, and so on. How do we actually make customers more compatible? Well, if you go to their website, you'll see that they do a lot to train you, a lot to show you what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. In short, they're giving people information so that they know they're also giving incentives where if you, if you provide clothing that doesn't actually get sold, doesn't meet their standards, you get it sent back and you have to pay for the shipping, right? So they're giving information, they're giving incentives to facilitate customers themselves selecting when they're compatible and opting to become more compatible if they choose. The other example, I think, is IKEA. Many of you know IKEA, right? That you know if you go to IKEA, what, what are you doing, right? You're going to be putting the furniture together. You're going to be spending the whole day doing that, right? They're clear about that, right? There's a trade-off there. They're clear about that. You're going to get low price, big selection, but you're going to actually have to put a lot of work in, right? And so they're very clear about that. They're going to attract compatible customers. Commerce Bank is a final one. Commerce Bank at one point was the fastest growing, most profitable bank in the US. They eventually got acquired by TD uh, Bank. But Commerce Bank was interesting because they uh, systematically offered the worst rates in every market they were in. But they did that because they actually wanted to offer the most convenience. They took the savings they, they got from paying lower rates, and they funneled that into keeping the branches open longer hours. right? And so this, they, they made this trade-off to be more convenient at the expense of good rates. Now, the interesting thing Commerce did is that it turns out that they don't just make that trade-off. They also, in their advertising, told people that we pay the worst rates. Why are they doing that? Why would you tell people you're, it's one thing to say I'm going to pay poor rates to provide better service, but they're actually, it's to, to do that, right, to make that trade-off. But they're out there advertising. We offer the worst rates. 
Compatibility, right? None of you, nobody in this room would do this, right? But what Southwest, I'm sorry, what Commerce is doing is saying, look, we, if you can do this, right? Imagine if you do this. You create a model where you want to compete on service, but not a single price-sensitive customer walks through the door. They're avoiding, right? They're repelling incompatible customers, and they're doing that quite deliberately. But again, this is the idea of decentralized reduction, right? I'm giving people information so that I systematically don't attract incompatible customers, systematically attract those that want what we offer. Let's move to the other side, right? Which is suppose that we're in the world that was articulated here, which is that you know, for our mission reasons, for whatever reason, or because we just want to grow, we actually want to be, we want to try to accommodate more segments, more segments with very different operational needs. Now we're on the side where we've chosen to accommodate. And again, we could do this in a centralized way or we could do this in a decentralized way. Let's talk about the centralized way. So here's the idea. In brief, right, the idea is can you work to systematically align your operating system to accommodate the needs and behaviors of, of many different groups of customers? And we think the answer to this is what we call a multi-focused approach. And the idea here is um, you know, take the idea of focus with Southwest. Now suppose that Southwest or another airline wants to serve the Southwest customer, but they also want to serve the full service customer. What do you do? You try to run two separate airlines under one roof, right? One low cost, one full service airline. That's the idea here is that I have two different focus models. I accommodate those differences by having different operating models that are focused for different segments. The common sort of thing that you can see, like if you look at any hotel company, right? You think about big hotel groups like Starwood, Marriott, and so on. They have their five-star brands, but they also have their lower-end three-star, uh, three- and four-star brands. They're catering to different markets. They have different value propositions, very different operating systems, but they're under one roof, right? Because there's economies of scale. There's all sorts of benefits to having them under one roof. So in, in short, it's a way to sort of how do we grow and get scale? At the same time, we're getting focus across multiple segments. So the idea here, right, is that to the extent that you have segments, member segments that have very, very different needs, to the extent you can separate out how you serve them operationally, this raises the possibility that you can have multiple focus models under one firm, right? But it really requires that you can separate out the experience for the different segments, right? Think of the hotel customers. The customers that go to the Fairfield Inn, very different than go to the five-star Marriott properties, for example. They could separate out the experience, different models serving both. So this is a possibility here a way we can accommodate, but at the same time get focused. And so that's the idea. Let's look at the last one really quickly, which is what we call decentralized accommodation. And here the idea is that rather than you creating different models for different segments, you have one operating model, but you empower your employees to make different decisions on how they serve customers. This is the, the way we might sort of be all things to all people. It puts a lot of strain on your culture. It puts a lot of strain on how you're empowering people, how you're holding them accountable. But you can imagine there's lots of success, successful models that do this. And in fact, here, you know, the idea here is rather than separate focused service models, we're empowering employees to make better decisions themselves, deviate from the standard model when it makes sense to do so, stick to it when it doesn't. And again, we see this in lots of places. You can imagine in uh, any high-end kind of hotel chain, for example, Four Seasons and so on, this is the model. Any, anywhere where we're competing on personalization, this is the model. Uh, a bank that I've studied pretty extensively, I think is interesting, is Handelsbanken. This is a Swedish bank that um, I think the easiest way to characterize them is they found a way to scale up the credit union model to thousands of branches over multiple countries. 
If you actually look at what they do, they compete very heavily on branch-based, face-to-face service, highly customized. All the decisions about lending, all the decisions about products and so on are taken in the branches. Highly empowered branch managers that's really about fully personalized and customized banking. And so we see this model in financial services as well, but what you can imagine here, right, is this puts a lot of strain on culture. It puts a lot of onus on US leaders, if you want to do this, to actually create very strong cultures. And cultures where you're providing employees with information, resources, decision rights, and incentives to take ownership of the relation, right? You're, you're requiring, you're asking employees to make these accommodation decisions. We need to create a culture in which they do that responsibly. And so that's, that's the idea here. So we could do all of these, but in short, you know, the idea here is that, um, the idea here is that you know, once you take this lens that compatibility is important, it has big implications for your performance, we have to think creatively how to manage it. And I think there are these sort of four different ways for you to, to think about it. So that's the idea of compatibility and focus. Let me very quickly, uh, in the short time I have here, a couple of things. You know, why do these ideas work? Right? Why does it seem that focus, compatibility, firms that do that well, that tends to be a hallmark of very strong customer experience firms. Well, why is that? And it's pretty simple in my mind, which is focus and compatibility lead to clarity, right? Clarity in terms of how you're competing, what you're doing well, what you're not doing. That leads to clarity and helps you do a few things. It leads to clarity that helps you design your operations better, right? In a sense, what's happening here is that firms are thinking from the outside in. We're starting with what customers value. We're starting with who are the primary customers we want to serve. And then we're actually thinking you know, uh, backwards to how do we design our operations to be best in class for those primary customers. So it leads to better operations design. Clarity and strategy and clarity in who you're serving, it also helps you build better cultures. right? If you think of culture as simply what guys' decisions in the absence of policy, what norms do you want to create, what kind of core values do you want people to have, that becomes easier to communicate. It becomes easier to create when there's clarity and actually what value you're trying to deliver. And I think the other sort of related idea here is it allows firms to sustain cultures even as they grow, right? Once we're clear on that value proposition, once we're clear on who we're serving, it actually means that we can be very clear on what attributes we need from our employees, who we want to hire, how we want to motivate them. All the stuff we do internally becomes easier once we have that clarity. So I think that this is a big answer, uh, the answer to why this, these are such enduring principles. So uh, really quickly, let me just, uh, go to the next idea, which is operational transparency. And you, I know Michelle kind of gave you this example uh, briefly yesterday. But the idea of operational transparency, again, is that much of the work that's going on on behalf of customers is invisible to them, especially when they're interacting through electronic channels. Think of your lending processes, right? How much time goes by between when customers give you information and when a decision is actually made. There's a lot of work going on that's invisible to customers. That could lead to frustration. Domino's is an interesting sort of just example of this. Just to give you one example of this idea of operational transparency and how you deal with this. Domino's is, uh, you know, a, a, we all know, a pizza company, but they think of themselves more as a customer experience company. And the customer experience is they want you to get their product, but they want you to get it quickly. And they've sort of thought about themselves as an experience company for a long time. And one of the things that they've started to do is, OK, it's going to take us a half hour to get you your pizza. There's a lot going on in the background that you don't see. Let's actually become transparent. So they give you this pizza tracker that shows you where your pizza is in the order, in the ordering process. They also uh, have moved forward with having cameras in their store where you can track your actual pizza and see it coming out of the oven and what stage it's at. 
they have it going the other way where employees can actually, you can actually give real-time feedback to the employees as you watch them make your pizza, creating real transparency, right? Now, here's the thing. This seems silly, but it turns out that in Domino's internally, what they could see, right, nothing has changed about the product. Nothing has changed about the operations. All that's changed is the transparency in the operation of the customer and the employee. And this has had big impacts on NPS, on customer satisfaction, because it affects the perceived value, right? People see the experience, it affects perceived value. And it turns out my colleague Ryan Buell has looked at this across a whole bunch of different settings, ranging from financial services to healthcare. And it turns out to be the case in almost any industry he's looked at, that when we can create that transparency, people's perceptions of value actually go up even when nothing about the service operation has changed. So this is the idea, right? If we can give people, we can actually show people the work, perceptions of value go up. The other one is uh, interesting. They did some research in uh, retail. And they looked at people's perceptions of retail products, in this case, a wallet. People were buying wallets. And they did a nice experiment where in one condition, people just bought the wallet uh, based on the information that was at hand. In the other, they provided transparency in how much it cost to make the wallet, labor costs, raw materials, and so on. And actually, that had big impacts. Showing people the costs that went into it, their perceived value of that product actually went up dramatically, right? So again, nothing about the products changed. All that's changed is transparency in the information you're providing. Long story short, right, this idea of operational transparency we think is important because uh, to the customer, right, transparency can improve perceptions of value. Seeing the process leads to more perceived effort, better appreciation by the customer, more perceived value. For the employee, transparency can improve service performance because when we know customers see what we're doing, we actually work harder. When we know it's appreciated, we actually work harder. This is what the research has tended to show. And so I think what's powerful about this idea is that as you move toward more towards digital channels, as you move more towards channels where the work actually going on behind the scenes becomes more invisible, this is a way that we can differentiate on experience in those channels. So I think this is a powerful idea. Uh, finally, let me just uh, summarize very briefly. Second part of this research, so those are the ideas, right? The, the enduring ideas that we see across great customer experience competitors, focus, customer compatibility, operational transparency. The question, can these ideas work for credit unions, I think is relatively obvious. I mean, credit unions are a service business like many of these others. But do we have data, right? And we actually did the survey. And what the survey results are showing so far are a few interesting things. First is, you know, on the survey that we did, many of you may have answered this, we had some questions that we were able to aggregate up into measures of the extent to which credit unions were focused, the extent to which they were uh, investing resources in selecting compatible members and uh, managing compatibility proactively. And what we found are a few interesting things, that those credit unions with high uh, levels of focus and higher levels of compatibility with their members showed better performance on a few dimensions. One was higher satisfaction. The other is higher asset growth and higher loans to assets, but also higher non-interest expense, right, which may not be a good thing, except to say that what this probably means is there's a lot of investment in service, a lot of investment in customer experience. That's at least what we're sort of seeing for now. The other thing that we saw in that was, that was interesting is that we asked a lot of questions to look at um, you know, how firms were measuring customer experience, how, much de uh, how devoted they were to this. And what we kind of found there is that credit unions that had a broader, more diverse, and generally more sophisticated measurement approaches, right? More, they're, they're measuring more aspects of the experience. They're devoting more resources. They're measuring it in more of a variety of ways. 
that in general, firm uh, credit unions that are more sophisticated in their measurement approaches had higher asset growth and loans per assets and also tended to have broader product ranges, probably because of the information they're getting from that data. But so some, some, some interesting insights there that um, you know, the approach you're taking to measurement seems to have some implications for how uh, good your, your, your managing experience. So a lot to give you in the short time. I'd like to, uh, you know, maybe pause here. Yes, let's pause here for a moment because Dennis is about to walk you through an exercise. And if you have 15 more minutes, I think you'll find it really worth your while. I love the sentiment about not trying to be all things to all people and that best-in-class organizations decide they are deliberately going to be bad at some things customers might care about in order to be the best at things they care most about. But how exactly do we do that when, as service organizations, we naturally tend to want to be everything to everyone? Well, Dennis says if you think about strategy not just as what you choose to do, but also what you choose not to do, this is the fundamental idea of focus. Listen in as Dennis takes you through an actionable exercise to help your credit union focus on trade-offs with respect to your members' experience. All right, welcome back everyone. So I thought what we would uh, do this session is to maybe uh, spend some time trying to apply some of the ideas and I wanna lead you through an exercise that we often do in our executive education programs that are actually focused on customer experience. So we have, uh, we have some executive programs where we get uh, you know, uh, leaders from companies that are trying to compete on customer experience. And one of the things we do to make sure that they could take some of the lessons home is we have some of these applied workshops. And I thought it would be useful to take you through this and uh, give you something you could take back to your own organizations, give you a process I think that you could take back to help you start to think about applying these ideas. And the, um, the, the, the thing I want us to focus on here is this idea of focus and trade-offs. And how do we think about that with respect to our members? And I'm gonna give you a specific exercise, but before I do that, let me just give you uh, one more quick example other than Southwest, just to get our kind of heads around what we're gonna be thinking about. And the example that I mentioned briefly is uh, Commerce Bank, a really good example of this. So Commerce Bank, um, what Commerce did is basically say that if we go and look at the assumptions that everybody in the industry is making, everybody assumes that what customers value is rates, they value product variety. But actually when they were looking at the data, it said that the majority of customers just take those things for granted. And the thing that they really care about, the mass market at least in this case, which is their primary customer, are really two things. One is having more convenient service and convenience means more operating hours, right? That the, you heard the no, notion of banker's hours, only open till four and so on, and it's not sort of meeting people's needs. And so their view was, you know, more people care about convenience than they do about, say, rates, for example. The other is people generally want better customer interactions. Tired of feeling like a number, they want more friendly service. It's the reason credit unions tend to do well relative to large banks, right? And so they're basically looking at this and saying, as a large bank, everybody's assuming the basis of competition is product variety and rates, but actually what the data shows is what people really care about are these two things. So what uh, the CEO of Commerce does, and it's a kind of interesting to note that the CEO of Commerce came from outside of the industry, and so maybe thinking a little bit differently. He was coming from a retail mindset. And he comes in and says, you know, look, I think we can build a model that's better than what's out there if we're willing to make certain trade-offs, right? And the idea here was everybody assumes that what matters is deposit rates, but what we're going to do is sacrifice on that because people are saying that's not the thing that drives my decision. We're going to offer worse rates, but then we're going to make this trade-off where we're going to funnel that into creating value on the dimension that customers care more about. So you can imagine, right, keeping banks, uh, branches open longer, more personnel costs, more electricity costs, all the costs that go into maintaining a branch network start to go up. 
we're going to save money uh, doing, being deliberately bad at something customers might care about in order to be great at something they care about more. Right? That's the idea. Let's pick a few points of focus differentiation, make trade-offs on things they might care about to be best in class in something they care more about. Same thing for better customer interactions. right? If you think about what does it take to uh, create better customer interactions in a branch network, of course, that's going to come down to the culture you create around your employees. And what's interesting about uh, commerce here is I think it's a good illustration of what I mentioned in the talk. And that is that when you have focus, it leads to simplicity and clarity, which makes it easier to do things like have good HR policies, hire the right people. You have clarity in what you're trying to deliver to customers. You can have clarity in the kinds of employees you hire. And what, com what Commerce did is say, look, we need better customer interactions, which means we need to actually hire people with empathy for customers. We need to hire people from outside the industry, hotels, healthcare, uh, people that have uh, traditionally been in roles, customer service roles where they've had empathy for customers. Here's the problem. What, can you imagine what would happen if Citibank went and hired a bunch of people from outside of the industry to be tellers in their branches? So much complexity in the product offering, right? And so what Commerce does is says, look, customers may want variety, but they care a lot less about that than they do about this. And so what we're going to do is offer a really simple product set, strip away all the complexity, basic checking, basic uh, savings, basic loan type of accounts. We're going to strip away that complexity. Which means that now we can actually hire for attitude and train for service, and that's going to produce better customer interactions. Again, you see the same idea here. These things are, are things that conventional wisdom says banks can't offer. But commerce comes along and says, look, we're going to give up on these things in order to be best in class at these things customers care more about. So a few points of focus differentiation and a willingness to make trade-offs. So I think you see the same sort of idea that we saw with uh, Southwest Airlines. And you know, if you just sort of put this in the same framework, you know, the whole process of this is to, is, a, is to start with this outside-in thinking, right? Which is think about what it is that your members, your customers truly value. What are all the attributes they care about when they're choosing you versus a competitor? What are the attributes that matter in your service offering from the customer's perspective? And we want to order that from most to least important. And so you'll notice here, there's a couple of things going back to the previous talk. One is that there's a sense of who's the primary customer because we have a target market in mind. Second is, we're very specific about what the attributes that define service are. And the last thing is, is if we can be in the minds of our members, how do they order those from most to least important, right? If the, the idea here is that if you ask your members, you ask your customers what they value, they're going to say everything, right? That's ultimately what customers would want. But the task here and the trick is actually, can we you know, figure out when push comes to shove, how are they making decisions? What's the priority ordering for them? Because then we could start to think about how do we design our operations to deliver. And this is the idea here. The basic idea is that you know, I think the, the um, natural inclination is we all want to do this. right? We all want to be fives on everything. The problem is, is if you try to do that, it's expensive, and you're likely to end up being kind of average to everybody. And so this is kind of you know, the, what we see with Southwest, what we see with this example is that in an ideal world, right, if you get this right, in an ideal world, if you really understand what it is that your customers truly value, that we can organize ourselves so that we're not over-investing in the things that matter less in the service of over-investing in the things that add the most value to our customers, right? So that's, that's the basic idea here, that this is the ideal. So what I, want to, um, what I want us to do here is to take a little bit of time to give you an opportunity to apply this thinking in your own organizations. And so here's the exercise I'd like us to do. 
So for this session, uh, we're going to do three things. And the first thing is I'm going to ask you to get into groups, and I want you to think about a, uh, you know, a, a member segment you're trying to serve better, a product offering, a service offering you're trying to optimize. And I want you to think about uh, what are the specific attributes that are really truly valued by your target member. So the target member you have in mind, what are the, what are the specific attributes that value service, that, that uh, define service? And here, forget about trying to order it. Just if you had to brainstorm, come up with a cloud of attributes, what are the sort of attributes that define good service for the members that you're thinking about? So that's the first thing, is just come up with the cloud, the list of attributes that matter. And so I've put the ones here for Southwest, right? You can imagine for any airline, people would be thinking about fast transport, friendly service, convenience of the airports, on-time performance, and so on, right? That these are all the things that de could define service. This is a cloud of attributes. Second thing I'm going to ask you to do is to try to put yourself in the minds of your customer or your members, the ideal member you have in mind, and then order those attributes, right? From their perspective, how would they order these attributes from most to least important? That's going to be the second step. The next thing is to provide an honest assessment of your performance against those attributes. So I want to highlight the honest part, right? So the idea this tool is not going to be useful, this process is not useful, unless you provide an honest assessment, because the idea here is once we do this, we're going to get a diagnostic on where might we actually be able to improve member experience, where might we be able to allocate resources differently. And so this is the, um, the idea here is that you know, we're going to go from the list of attributes to an ordering from the customer's perspective. Right? This is starting from thinking outside. The inside part is we're going to think about how are you currently performing on those attributes? How are you currently delivering on those attributes relative to customer expectations? Provide an honest assessment of that. And then we'll draw out the graph for you, right? You'll have different attributes here. You'll, uh, you may look different than this. The next thing I want you to do is, if you get through that, is to um, think about what is the competitor that keeps you up at night. When you think about how your members are choosing you versus other sort of providers, who are the what's the competitor that you just have in mind that keeps you up at night, right? And then we want to think about how is that competitor performing on the same attributes for our customer segment. Once we do this, we'll get a good diagnostic about where you can differentiate, where you can improve experience, where you might be able to allocate resources. So this is the idea. The, the exercise is pretty simple in terms of the steps, right? First, define the attributes. Have, have in mind a primary segment. Define specific attributes valued by those target members. Order those from their perspective, most to least important. An honest assessment of your performance against those attributes. And then finally, if you can do an honest assessment of a competitor that, that you have in mind that competes for the same members. Here's what I want us to think about, which is most of us will not look like Commerce Bank. Most of us will not look like Southwest, right? That's the whole idea of this. We may find we look something like this, right? That kind of average on things that um, you know, we don't need to be doing so well at. We might be um, you know, underemphasizing things that matter more to customers, to our members, for example. We may find we look like this, right? And so then the diagnosis, the diagnosis here is then that, you know, could you think about reallocating resources, right? Reallocating resources from things that are underappreciated attributes to things that are more appreciated. Think of Commerce Bank, for example, uh, giving worse deposit rates, funneling that into providing better service in terms of convenience. That's the idea. So this will give us a good diagnostic. Think about whether there are opportunities there. The second way to think about this right, is that you, know, you may be excelling on things that are just underappreciated by, by members, maybe because they're unaware that, th that it's important to them. Maybe they're unaware about how it impacts them. That's what we call a reframing opportunity. And so the other possibility is when you sort of see this, 
is are there possibilities to reframe attributes higher in the customer's or the member's preference order, making them more aware, making it more visible that you're excelling on the dimension, making it more visible how uh, the service you're really good at delivering is actually impacting their lives. That's the other alternative, right? Rather than resource allocation and changing operations, could we think of opportunities to reframe the importance of the service that we're delivering to the member? So finally, in terms of logistics, uh, there's several levels at which you could think about this. The so first is, if you look at Southwest, you look at the Commerce Bank example, they applied that to the strategy of the whole company, but that's because they have one primary large target market in mind, and they're designing their service offering for that target market. But that's one way to think about it, the strategy of the company as a whole. We might apply it to a specific channel, right? So we're thinking about how to differentiate and create a great experience in mobile, for example. We might want to think about that very differently than branch, for example. We could apply it at that level. The other is there's a specific service or product offering you're trying to design. We could certainly think of it this, that way. And then finally, as I mentioned earlier, if there's a particular member segment, and I think here you could think about a member segment that you feel like you are not currently configured to serve well and you'd like to serve better. It could be, as was mentioned earlier, the, there's a segment that is relatively small but you want to actually improve it and you want to grow in. You could think of that segment as one that you want to go after and think about how you're serving them. But the idea here is think about an important member segment from a mission standpoint or from a growth standpoint or whatever it might be for you. This could be applied at many different levels in your organization, and so I think you could take this back and hopefully find it as a useful tool to start that conversation. Well, thank you all uh, very much. Uh, please feel free to keep in touch if you have questions about this. As you take it back, if you want to just bounce ideas, feel free to reach out anytime. And thank you all for a great day. Thank you. All right, that's it for the fill-in, folks. Thanks again for listening. Dennis has been on our podcast before, so if you want to hear more from him, check out episode 36 about open book management. As always, we are grateful to Dennis and his expertise. He is truly helping us live up to our mission to support and strengthen your organizations as we all work to improve consumer financial well-being. One more thing before we wrap. I invite you to come help us celebrate 30 years of Filene Research Institute at our Big Bright Minds annual event on November 19th and 20th in Durham. Visit filene.org slash bbm19 to register today. If you can't make that one, join us for our first research event of 2020 in Irvine, California on January 28th and 29th. We're bringing our research on consumer thinking and emerging technology together for an introspective look at the types of insecurities both credit unions and members are facing in a time of new technologies and changing economies. Check out filene.org slash events for details. If you like this episode, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. And make sure you're subscribed to the Filene Fill-In Podcast so you can keep up with what's going on at Filene. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch about today's show, email me at hollyf at filene.org or find us on Twitter at Filene Research. Until next time, thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.